Welcome to the Retirement Committee Field Guide Podcast. I'm your host, Alden Bianchi. The Retirement Committee Field Guide explores the world of U.S. retirement plan governance with a focus on fiduciary committees. U.S. retirement plans, 401k plans in particular, have over the last dozen years been the subject of an unending stream of class action lawsuits alleging some combination of plan mismanagement, excessive fees, or self-dealing. Plan sponsors have responded by upgrading plan compliance and installing robust oversight that often includes the appointment of a retirement or fiduciary committee. These committees are typically advised by professional investment managers and benefits consultants. Each month, this podcast examines some aspect of retirement committee maintenance, emerging best practices, and developing law, among others. Its purpose is to educate and inform plan sponsors, committee members, and others with an interest in the topic on all aspects of the work of retirement committees and to encourage committees that are best in class. Welcome to the episode three of the Retirement Committee Field Guide. This is Alden Bianchi, your host. Uh, today, we're speaking with Ryan Campagna. He's a Senior Vice President and Retirement Plan Advisor at Sentinel Benefits and Financial Group. Uh, welcome, Ryan. Hi, Alden. Good to be here. So, Ryan, why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your firm and, and, and set a little context, please. Yeah, that would be great. Um, been at Sentinel for about 17 years now, and my primary responsibility is uh, talking with business owners and retirement plan committees and help them navigate the fiduciary waters to, to retirement plan best practices. So that involves everything from acting as a 321 and 338 advisor to folks' programs, as well as doing a lot of fiduciary training to retirement plan committees. Um, Sentinel as a whole is a full-service employee benefits firm. Um, we primarily are focused on Northeast and the Michigan area based on a recent acquisition. And uh, in the retirement plan space, we uh, tend to work with retirement plans from about $1 million in assets to about $100 million in assets. And our average is around $12 million. Okay. So, so Ryan, you just um, you used a couple of terms that I'd like to drill down a bit uh, to, to make sure that everybody who's uh, listening gets a sense of what we're talking about here. You mentioned both a 321 advisor and a 338 advisor. Those are obviously references to provisions of ERISA that designate uh, a certain style of fiduciary. Uh, but why don't you hum a few bars about uh, how you understand those? And maybe we can think about this for a second. Sure. So when it comes to financial professionals that are out there to assist plan sponsors and retirement plans, uh, there are a lot of different ones out there. One of the big things that our industry as investment advisors try to do is making sure clients can differentiate um, the, the, the fiduciary standard versus a suitability standard of a broker. So the fiduciary standard is the, the pinnacle of the, the, the investment standard, and we as fiduciaries would be obligated to only act in plan sponsor and participants' best interest. So I think that could be, uh, that's typically one of the more sought after um, ways to engage a financial professional, especially an investment advisor, to work with a retirement plan. So once a plan sponsor or a committee has uh, determined that they're ultimately going to hire an advisor, the next step is in what way do they want to engage the advisor? So as you mentioned, section codes within ERISA 321 or 338 allow a plan sponsor to outsource certain responsibilities to a dedicated expert. So the 321 advisor relationship um, tends to be the most popular. Um, it does allow the plan sponsor to share the fiduciary risk with an investment advisor. And the role of that investment advisor is to guide 
advise and to suggest and make recommendations. In a 321 arrangement, the plan sponsor always has the final say to take the recommendations that a 321 fiduciary would provide them and ultimately say, yes, Ryan, we do want to move forward with that investment change. We do want to take that advice. Um, and in contrast to that, the 338 investment manager is another role that folks can be engaged in. And that role is different. Because although in both roles we take on fiduciary responsibility, as a 338 investment manager, we have discretion over the plan assets. So when, when debating which is the best thing for a particular group, it typically comes down to how much fiduciary um, liability they want to outsource to a third party and how much of a hand do they want to have within the decision-making process. Do they like getting into the nitty-gritty of the investments and want to have that final say or because they have a dedicated expert that they've hired, they want to take a back seat and kind of rely on that person to make the decisions and allow the committee to focus on other things. You know, and that you make a good point. So for years, the, uh, the, the I think, the three, the so-called 321 arrangement, which is really a co-fiduciary arrangement, became almost universal, if not commonplace. And I always liked that, particularly for 401k plans. And in a K plan, you're selecting a menu of investment options that not only has an investment component to it, but also has some connection to your workforce to a greater or lesser degree. So I've always liked having uh, the plan sponsor, the folks on the committee that are that are that are with the plan sponsor, some, making some of those decisions or making them with an advisor. Uh, in contrast, if you have something like a cash balance plan or a defined benefit plan, where you don't have individually directed investments, uh, there I think that's an ideal scenario where, hey, I'm I'm not an investment professional, the, the, you, you don't come to me for that, and I'd, I'd screw it up anyway. So there you're much better off outsourcing the liability to professional investment asset management, and that would be under a so-called 338 arrangement. Uh, recently, I, I've been uh, encountering uh, another uh, breed of advisor called a 316 advisor, and I'll, I'll mention that just because it might come up. It's a little bit of a different beast, but essentially what that is is the plan sponsor outsources oversight of plan administration uh, to a, a third party. Uh, and I can see instances where that might make some sense, but overall I'm inclined to, uh, to keep the administrative functions uh, within, the, within the, the, the plan sponsor's uh, management. Absolutely. I guess my, my one comment, so I, I agree with all of your uh, thoughts all there. Um, plan sponsors should also keep in mind that although ERISA defines those three types of professionals, Oftentimes, the various services and the service deliverable from, um, from provider to provider, especially in the 316 world, can vary dramatically. So don't think that all 316 administration programs are the same or all 338 investment advisors do the same thing. Some of them have very different target markets. So reading some of the fine print and interviewing a handful of them is certainly a best practice. Yeah, that, that's a good point. That, that's a good, that's a, it's a fair, fair point too. Um, so let's turn to some of the, uh, we, I think we started or we planned to start off with, with looking at kind of some basics about the retirement committee. And, and the fascinating question here is, and it really is one that has, that you can talk about a lot. There's an awful lot to it is, why do you have a retirement committee in the first place? And, and let me frame it 
from a high level, and then I'll in, invite your your thoughts. Um, obviously, ERISA, well, not so perhaps not obviously to some folks, but uh, ERISA has, for our purposes, three principal roles: a plan sponsor, which is almost always the the company that's sponsoring the plan, a uh, plan administrator, and that's the, the folks that have the high level duties to administer the plan day to day. And that is by default, unless you do something else, the, the, the company that sponsors the plan. And then the named fiduciary usually, or in the old days, that was the trustee. Of course, that has been outsourced. But it really is that second plan administrator function that, you're, that you need, that folks want to do something with. Uh, and I'll, I'll stop there, uh, Ryan, and invite you to fill it in because that's what we're here for. So go for it. Thanks. Um, so I think first and foremost, why you would have a retirement plan committee would be to formalize the decision-making process when it comes to the important decisions about the plan. So ERISA clearly indicates that you have to follow a prudent process, and that, and that really applies to every aspect of the plan, from, uh, from the fiduciary and retirement plan meetings to the investment selection to the vendor selection. There has to be a prudent process in place. So I think first and foremost, a committee really helps formalize that process. It can be a very large responsibility and sometimes a daunting responsibility for plan sponsors to really effectively manage their program. Oftentimes, it involves multiple departments within an organization coming together. You'll have people from human resources that have a lot of really good ideas about the best things that should be done within a committee. Typically, finance is always involved. And then oftentimes, there could be members of the operations team that also might want to be. So I think just because of the, the gravity and the, um, the size of the responsibility, you typically get multiple departments within the company wanting to come together to share different ideas, uh, di different points of view, and, and, and di definite um, points of interest to really um, expand upon. And then the other thing is, I think, you know, when you're also thinking of, and you had mentioned those, those kind of three components, you know, being on a committee and being a trustee does carry that personal financial liability. So I think people that understand that know that it's probably best to not take that on alone and share that responsibility with a broader committee. Now, Sentinel has clients of all different shapes and sizes. We have committees that have two to four members, and then we have larger committees that are, you know, have closer to five or seven members. And that typically is related to the size and the complexity of the plan. Smaller plan, not very dynamic, could be very effective though, might only need two or three people uh, versus perhaps a larger group. Some of the larger groups, for instance, like a banking client would be very set on having a very formal committee with a formal charter and bylaws. Um, whereas some of our smaller clients may not, may not like that type of formality and they would prefer more of an ad hoc committee. And, and ad hoc committees are okay, but typically there's no specific um, delegation of authority from the organization themselves. So they have to be careful because oftentimes they'll come to conclusions in a committee and then still have to bring it to somebody else like the CFO or the CEO for the final decision. So I think the, the idea is, is the more formal you can make it, the better. And that's something we talk to our clients about quite, quite a bit. You, know, you make a good point here, and I think that there's a story going back a little that helps frame all of this. If folks remember what happened to Enron when, when Enron imploded and there was a lawsuit, the participants in the 401k plan sued, uh, sued over the uh, implosion of, of the assets in that plan, and their defendants were 
were the senior management and the board of Enron. And of course, uh, the board members and the senior management were shocked, shocked. To, what are we doing as defendants? We, you know, we're, we're, we don't run this plan. Well, yeah, in the absence of a delegation, you really do. You do run the plan. You are legally the, the, the folks that are speaking for the plan sponsor and for the plan administrator. And what a committee allows you to do is it properly delegated, and you make a good point there. If you properly delegate that fiduciary responsibility to a committee, then if the plan is sued, at least the people that are that are that are named in the plain, in the complaint and are, and who are deposed for substantive purposes are people who know something about retirement benefits. The only questions they can then ask the uh, the board members or senior management is, "Did you properly monitor your committee?" and, and which is not doesn't go to the substance substantive knowledge about how retirement plans work. Uh, so done right, you really, one of the principal purposes, I think, is to protect the board and uh, your senior management. Uh, I know one of the topics we, we might get to is who should be on the committee. And I'm, I'm of the view that you should not have your board members on the committee, uh, nor should you have your CEO. These are folks who you don't want in the dock uh, if the plan ever gets sued. So, and actually, Ryan, I know we have, we have, uh, thought about a series of questions. I doubt that we're going to get through all of them, but one I'd like to pivot to now because I think it's so terribly important is the issue of scalability. And what I mean by that is the laws governing retirement plans apply with equal force to a plan of a 10-person company with half a million dollars in assets uh, and with a plan with 50,000 employees and billions in assets. But obviously, the, the amount of attention uh, to, to regulatory compliance is going to be quite different. Uh, so could you hum a few bars about how, how you think about different size plans complying with these rules and what might be appropriate at different levels of assets and headcount? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, I can certainly touch upon something that I think is going to apply to all plans. So the, the average person that sets up a 401k initially is typically doing it to benefit their employees and give them a, a mechanism to save for retirement. Oftentimes, there's no consideration given to fiduciary liability and the work that is involved in maintaining that program, especially as it grows and gets more and more complicated. And the larger it gets, and the more complicated it gets, the more, the more times there are for, for potential errors. So I think one of the things that's most critical to make sure that both large and small companies alike uh, really understand uh, their obligations is, is the idea of fiduciary training. Um, when I started in this business, you know, about 18, 17, 18 years ago, um, I really didn't hear the term fiduciary training that often, um, but it's very commonplace now. And anytime we engage with a new client, we all, we want to set that stage and make sure that those committee members understand what their obligations are. So first and foremost, we want people on investment on retirement plan committees that are interested and want to be there. Um, I've had clients over the years that have kind of appointed people to committees, and they, they really didn't want to be there and seem disinterested, and, and that's really not a good fit. So I think having interest in the area and, and wanting to be there is a pretty simple first, first step. Um, making sure they sign a fiduciary acknowledgement letter that would allow them to understand and acknowledge that they understand their fiduciary responsibility. Um, so I think those are some basic things that you can do to make sure some of the smaller plans are getting some of the same benefit as the larger ones are. And, and the fiduciary training is really an incredibly broad topic. You, you at least want to make sure that 
the committee understands, you know, ERISA's fiduciary duties, like, you know, working for the exclusive benefit of the participants and their beneficiaries, um, paying reasonable expenses. And the expense one is, is, is typically a very hot button topic for fiduciary trainings because it also starts to bring into play some of the lawsuits that have been more and more prevalent within our, within our industry. And the fact that they're coming down market, it's not just the Fortune 500 companies that are dealing with those now. It's um, you know a lot of the average companies that you'll see on the street as well as uh, a lot of nonprofits and colleges. When it comes to fiduciary training, it's not only important to do it, but it's also important to document it, have it in some minutes somewhere. And the reason, it's quite simple. If you talk to any of your accountant friends, they're fond of saying something like, if it isn't documented, it didn't happen. Uh, that's obviously a little extreme, but you do make the point. If there's ever a need to establish that, that these folks have been properly trained and understand their duties, then it's one thing to say, yeah, yeah, we had a, a fiduciary training. It's another thing to be able to pull out the minutes of a meeting in which it's recorded that, um, that there was an actual fiduciary training taking place. I'll make one other note about minutes. It's just something that, that comes up for me quite a bit, and I just like to emphasize it. There are many different styles of minute taking, and, and, and the style can vary from company to company. Some boards uh, or governing committees like in very detailed minutes, so an hour-long minute might produce 17 pages of minutes. Uh, others, they just want the high-level bullet points. I like for retirement committees to keep it, keep it brief, keep it high-level, um, because the more that you put into meeting minutes, uh, the more you give a plaintiff's lawyer uh, something to pick at. Uh, so I, I encourage the taking of minutes. I think it's incredibly important, uh, but I also think you have to have some caution. Uh, and to, the, to their credit, I think many of the advisors that I, I work with from time to time uh, have gotten pretty good at that. So uh, good for them. I don't know if you have anything else on that before we, we move on, but uh, because what I'd like to move on to is um, uh, kind of the nuts and bolts, what a, what a committee meeting might look like. Uh, and Well, first of all, who might who should be on the committee? And then we'll, we'll, we'll tackle... Uh, uh, what the uh, what the committee does, but do you have any thoughts about who you like on the committee? I know I know I've shared mine. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, you know I alluded to earlier that multiple departments are typically represented on a committee. Um, so there's typically somebody from human resources, um, and typically somebody from finance, uh, and then maybe even something from, from operations. And, and I guess the the human resource and the finance departments typically are kind of the cornerstones of a committee, in, in my experience. And I think it works really well because they typically have very different backgrounds and very different interests within the plan. And that's good because they can bring a very different point of view. So a CFO or a controller is probably going to be very um, acutely interested in investment performance, expense ratios of investments, and perhaps the cost as the plan grows over time. So they might be interested in, uh, again, the investment benchmarking and then the fee benchmarking o o over a period of years. Whereas the human resource professionals, they want, um, they want um, administrative um, um, uh, accuracy, right? They, they want it to be a well-run plan. They want to automate things often. Um, but they also want to make sure that, that their participants are being supported from a customer service standpoint. 
And I'm not necessarily talking about processing alone, but making sure that they have the wherewithal to um, join the plan early, save the appropriate amount of money, and understand how to manage those assets on an ongoing basis. So retirement readiness and um, employee engagement are, are things that we do a tremendous amount of at our firm. Um, and, and it's really nice because you have those two kind of various components within the committee structure that typically, um, again, have, have their own points of views and it typically works really well. I would also just reiterate, um, having people that have bought in and really want to participate in the process, they don't have to be experts, but they need to be curious and willing to learn. Yeah, and that's an excellent point, uh, because obviously not any everybody that you recruit for a committee is going to have deep knowledge of this area. In fact, the vast majority of them will not. Uh, but at least that they have the curiosity and are willing to go through the training and learning curve, then, uh, then it seems to work out pretty well. Uh, and I know once you get a committee up and running and, and, and get the flow of it, they, see, they do seem to work well, um, uh, thanks in large part to folks like, like you. Uh, so, so we're we're coming up on the twenty minute mark. I think I'm going to wrap it up here. But uh, if there are any are there any closing thoughts you'd like to offer before we uh, bring this to an end? I think my only closing thought, based on the topics that we discovered, are really two that I think of. Um, when it comes to hiring a, a fiduciary professional to help you, make sure you interview a few and make sure those individuals would be willing to share that fiduciary responsibility with you. And that typically falls within that 321, 338 provider role. So I think that's one really important takeaway for the audience. And the second would be uh, process trumps outcomes. So making sure that in anything you're doing, you have a prudent process to go through and you're making a lot of documentation, which again, you alluded to as well. Ryan, thank you so much. This was terrific. I appreciate your time and expertise and uh, uh, wish you all the best in, uh, in 2021.